Today, I'm excited to present a conversation with Nita Dutters, the founder and CEO of LUS, an organic skincare line built on the principles of essentialism and inclusivity. Nita has become a great friend and inspiration over the last few years, and she demonstrates how entrepreneurship can be used as a social good. In this episode, Nita shares how a bold move from Sydney to New York launched her a career in media, beauty, and fashion, experiences which inevitably led her to create her modern beauty brand. She opens up about the foundations of her work ethic, growing up with a single mom, using her business as a platform to create change, and how she demonstrates the philosophy of less is more by valuing experience above material trends. Here's Nita on the line. Nita, thank you so much for joining me today on the Art of Travel podcast. I've been a longtime follower of Les since you've started, and I just wanted to start with maybe share with us a little bit about your background. Yeah, of course. First, I just want to say thank you so much for having me. Um, Obviously, such a a fan of you as a person, as a friend, um, and also the work that you do and um, what you've created for this podcast. So I'm really honored to be here. A bit about me. I, it's hard to know where to begin, but um, if we're talking in terms of career trajectory and where I thought I would go, I um, I actually studied art history and literature at college. And after I graduated, I moved to New York and I thought I would get a job in a gallery for a year. Um, and then maybe travel the world or, you know, follow a path towards curatorship. But somehow I landed a job at Vice um, about a week after I landed in New York, which was very, very much the Wild West and just a very wild experience for someone in their early 20s. And we were working until 2 a.m. and then out partying until 4 or 5 a.m. and back at our desk the next day at 11 and doing it all over again. Um, And from there, I ended up transitioning into fashion, which was an industry I didn't ever really see myself working in. But um, somehow I landed there and I was working with a lot of very young, emerging, very artistic brands, a lot of brands coming in from Scandinavia, some from LA, um, who were really just breaking into that market of this more traditional canon of New York fashion. Mm -hmm. And just for um, context for our listeners, where are you from? Where did you live before you moved to New York? Ah, yes, I was, I was raised in Sydney in Australia um, and uh, had an incredible childhood there. I, my mom is actually from the Philippines, which I know is uh, your background too. So I feel very um, connected to my Filipino background Um, But I also had a very typical Sydney upbringing by the beach in nature and was very fortunate to have that um, as the preface to what ended up being a life living in the city, um, New York of all places, which obviously just was so far from home. And I think, you know, I've always been someone to really trust my gut and go with what feels right. But I only knew one person when I moved to New York who was my friend from college and we moved here. We moved to New York together, um, but I knew no one. I had no contacts. Um, I was told that a degree from Australia counted for nothing in America and um, I really had to learn how to be um, very, very persistent and um, handle a lot of no's in my life. And I think that tenacity is something that's actually um, being one of the most formative parts of, I guess, 
my life, you know, learning to, to deal with that and to accept that not as defeat, but as um, a challenge and, and work through that towards something bigger and, and greater and carve out my own path where there was no real support for me. Yeah. And that's, that's a super bold move. What compelled you to move to New York from Australia? How old were you? I was 22. Um, I don't think I understood really the challenge that I was facing. And um, I was young enough to not really comprehend or quantify what that was. And I think that was the perfect moment in time for me. I had been talking to my um, very good friend from um, university about moving to New York for a really long time. He and I actually became friends, bonding over this dream of living in New York together. He wanted to follow acting and I wanted to have a career in art and New York just seemed like the place that we had to be. Um, But I had never even been to America before I moved to New York. So that's how out of my depth I was. Um, And I had this job that I didn't like in Sydney right after I graduated. And I was dating a guy who I didn't really like either. (laughs) In my lunch break, I looked at my bank account and I had saved enough to, to do something. And I thought about it and I was like, do I keep saving? Do I buy a nicer car? Do I work towards, you know, buying an apartment in a few years or do I just do something completely wild? And I called my friend's brother who was a travel agent. And this is back in the days of going to a physical travel agent and booking a ticket through them. And I asked if he was free. I took the 10 minute drive over to his office and I asked him to book a one-way ticket to New York for me. And he started talking about visas, about um, (laughs) what I would actually need to make it into the US. And um, I was just so bullish on it. I just said, just book it for me. And um, I booked a one-way flight. I gave my notice at work, I think a couple of days later. The night that I booked my ticket, I drove over to my parents' place told them I was leaving, asked if I could move in for a couple of months and save a bit of extra money. Um, and the next day I broke up with my boyfriend. And that was um, that was probably the most formative choice I've made. It's really like this one choice where I had an option. Do I like jump off this cliff and take a leap of faith? Or do I stick to the path that is kind of carved out for me already? And I chose to just take a leap of faith, which um, just seems so, um, I don't know, so bold now. Yeah, that is very bold. And what was it like landing in New York? As you mentioned, this was your first time in America? Yes. I My, my mother has cousins in the US, um, you know, this kind of sprawling Filipino family that ended up immigrating to London and the US and- um, Yeah, the diaspora- Yes, exactly. So I had cousins and my mum had spent a lot of time in the US growing up, but um, I think because she had been to the US so frequently um, as a teenager and in her early 20s, there was never this real interest for her to um, return. And we as a family would always go to the Philippines for a month every year and um, be with, you know, my great aunts and great grandmother and 
my grandmother still has an apartment in Manila. So um, that was really our family trip. And, um, and I had backpacked around Europe, but for some reason, America just had never happened. And um, I don't know, I suppose I thought that if, if it didn't work out, I could always go home. Um, and that fallback was there for me. Um, so I don't know. I just didn't have, once you let go of the ties and you make a choice to do that, you know, you just have to let the cards fall where they will. And, um, I've been in the U S almost a decade now, which is crazy to think because by the time I had booked my flight, put my deposit down, um, for an apartment with a friend in New York and, um, bought a winter coat. I really had run through all of my savings and, um, was, you know, 22, 23, just trying to make things work, eating, uh, dumplings and, you know, drinking beer and and working (laughs) around the clock. And it was just such an incredible time to be in New York though. I remember landing and just feeling like, wow, I really feel like myself for the first time ever. Um, and Sydney will always be home to me, but there is something about New York that will always have my heart. And there's still a, a sense in me now that I've lived in LA for a while, I'm, I'm always traveling back to New York and, um, and I think about it every day. I mean, I think for certain people, it just has that hold and you experience so much in that city and, it changes the way that you think. And it's, um, I suppose I always felt a bit different growing up in Sydney. Um, I was just very artistic and, um, just a bit odd. I wore a lot of vintage clothing, even as a teenager, which wasn't very popular back then. And, um, I just, you know, I come from a mixed background and had this, this kind of melting pot of cultural ideas and, um, always felt kind of in between places. And, New York is such an incredible landing ground for someone who encompasses that. or Yeah, and identifies those feelings. I agree with you completely that there is definitely an energetic hold of feeling like you're on the fringe. Because in New York, it feels like that is the norm to be on the fringe. And I'm so curious to learn, did you land on your feet right away? Or what was it like looking for jobs in New York City as someone who is fresh off the plane, had never really visited America before. What was that entire experience like? Was it a culture shock? Yes, it was. But there was just a part of me that just wanted to make it work so badly. Um, I am the daughter of a single mom and um, she worked, when I was really little, she worked like three jobs and put herself through law school at night and was just such an incredible figure in my life and um, really showed me what hard work can create in your life if you're willing to roll up your sleeves and take that on. And I just tried to emulate her. And I think in a, in a way, I decided that I was going to try and put in the same amount of um, work and persistence when I arrived in New York that my mom had when she was in her early 20s. And um, I just looked for a job like it was a full-time job um, and I was going to internet cafes because we had, <laughs> I think we were waiting for internet connection or it was patchy because we were on the lowest plan or it was something ridiculous like that. But I would go to an internet cafe at eight in the morning and um, buy a, a coffee every four hours. Um, <laughs> and I was just 
so persistent. And um, my job advice, actually, I saw it and I just knew I wanted to work there. And um, I sent in my resume and my cover letter and I felt really, really good about it. I had written and written about art and interviewed musicians back in Sydney and it really felt like the right place for me and um the next day I woke up and I just had this gut feeling like you just haven't done enough and so what I did was I looked at the cover letter and the resume and um I reformatted it all so it looked like it was actually something that might be printed in Vice so it had the Vice logo and the Vice fonts and I printed it out and I traveled to Brooklyn and walked around until I found the vice headquarters and I walked in and just said, hi, I'm Nita and I'm applying for this job and I'd love to see someone from the team who's hiring. And the woman just thought I was absolutely mad and said, well, no one has time to see you. It's unscheduled and we're really busy. And I just said, I really don't mind. I I don't want to take their time. I just want to hand them my resume myself and I'm happy to sit here for as long as I need to. And I sat there for maybe two or three hours. And then this wonderful woman I worked with, Faye, who um, to a certain extent was a mentor for me when I first moved to New York, she walked in because I just wouldn't leave. And I think the receptionist was just so sick of me sitting around doing nothing. (laughs) Um, You know, she walked in and said, hi, I'm Faye. Are you here about this position? Because we're not interviewing anyone today. And I just said, it's so nice to meet you. And I'd be, you know, so grateful if you could just take the time to have a look at my um, resume and application and shook her hand and said, thank you. And, and left. And they said something like, I think it was a bit over 2000 people applied for the role and almost no one at vice gets an interview unless they know someone who works in house there, or at least they didn't at that time. And, um, and somehow I got the job. So I was just following my gut and um, just doing, I wanted to know that I had done everything I absolutely could when I got to New York in order to make it work. And um, that shifted things for me because I started to see that um, when you really, you know, believe in yourself, um, things start to change. um, And when you do the work to support that as well. That's incredible. And what did you learn um, at your time working at Vice? I learned how to be truly um, resourceful. It was kind of this moment where there was certain technology, but not the same amount of technological support that we have today where, you know, there wasn't a program for everything, but sometimes I didn't really understand how something worked. And I would go into the little kitchenette area or into the bathroom and look it up on YouTube because I wanted to be able to get things done. Um, And I suppose that was a bit of a fake it till you make it moment where there were just certain ways of operating in the U S as well, that were very different to Australia. And, um, I had to work twice as hard to keep up and, um, to just make sure certain things were done. Um, there were definitely really high expectations, I think on everyone that was working there and it was this boom period. Um, I think I also just learned how variety can actually really, um, help you in your professional life, Um, you know, wearing numerous hats. I think in Australia, there was definitely this um, approach, which was, you know, be very, very skilled at one thing, you know, really stick to this one focus. And and that was really where my mindset had been before working there. 
And um, working at Vice, I realized that you, in America, you had to wear multiple hats and juggle so many different balls. And um, I had to learn that very, very quickly in order to um, keep my job there. So, um, yeah, and I'm sure, you know, hindsight is 2020, but working in an editorial position, especially in New York, you do have to wear multiple hats and juggle multiple roles. And do you feel like now it's sort of primed you for being a founder? Yes. Um, I, I mean, I think that being a founder, the most important thing is to simply really believe in what you're doing. I mean, you have to have so much conviction around your company and your product and um, you have to be your own customer. And to me, that is key beyond anything, any learned skill, because you can learn skills at any age. You know, I'm learning so much every day. And um, I think that's, you know, something that really gets me out of bed in the morning. But working in editorial, learning how to adapt, moving countries, having very limited support and learning how to stay afloat um, has all, they've all been really instrumental in how I have taken on my role at less and just getting it off the ground. Um, And also just learning how to create something from nothing and problem solving my way through that because to arrive in America and not know anyone and to not have any introduction, no one that I could reach out to and say, hey, can you email this person for me? Or do you know anyone that works in this industry? I didn't have any of that. And I think being able to find a way through that and work out how to maybe approach things differently has been so helpful in being a founder and just thinking, okay, you know, I'm planning to launch this company Um, or create this product, but I have no contacts in this space. And how do you even go about that? Yeah, it's like a survival instinct. Yes, I definitely have survival. (laughs) It's funny. My husband says that to me all the time. He's just like, you are just a survivor. And um, we do joke about it a lot. I think it's, um, you know, a lot of people who have moved to New York in their early 20s feel that way. I think a lot of people who are the children of single parents who have seen how their parents survive and beyond move beyond that and learn how to thrive. Like there have been so many um, experiences and figures in my life who have shown me that, you know, surviving is something that is a baseline and beyond that you can actually create a really incredible life. So um, I've been lucky to have that instilled in yeah. me from a young age. This um, has a lot of personal resonance to me because my parents divorced pretty early on when we moved to America. And my mom took on full custody of me and my sister. And for many, many years, we lived in a one-bedroom apartment that was very small. And she worked two to three jobs to support us and stay afloat. And even though, you know, like she remarried and like, you know, current conditions are much more comfortable now, there is something that's instilled at a very early age of feeling like you have to fight for your daily bread and butter. And I'm so curious to hear if you feel the same where like it never really goes away, not in like a bad way, but it's just a way of being at this point where surviving is like the only option. You're completely right. And, you know, I see that in you as a friend as well. Um, 
just how grounded you are. I can understand so much um, about kind of where you come from as a person, just hearing that. But I, I think it's kind of two pronged. One is that when you have an experience of seeing um, someone work so hard for you to have, you know, basic necessities in life and to be able to go to school without worrying what food will be on the table at night. You are grateful for every moment, everything that you get, every small success is something that you're so grateful for. But simultaneously, you don't feel so tied to material things. Um, I'm not sure if you feel the same, but I think that there's a deep understanding among a lot of people who have been there or have seen their parents um, struggle to make things work where they understand that love and happiness doesn't come from objects. And um, I think that that is such an important lesson for all of us. And I feel very grateful for that. I mean, one of my earliest memories is um, my mom when when we had a very, very small apartment. It was a studio or, or a one bedroom like um, you, your sister and your mom had. And um, she, I think, got a fridge for free. And um, it was this rusty old thing and she painted it bright pink and it just brought so much happiness into our kitchen. And she made something that could have been such a sorry sight into something that just brought joy. And um, I always think about that and how you can shift your perspective in order to just live differently um, and how much that can just um, change your mood and, and way of thinking. So I definitely feel Aww. you there. Um, I, I didn't know that about you. And I love that so much. I feel like there's a lot of, um, this will be in a private chat later, but we can revisit some of these things because I, I find it so incredible, um, everything that you've shared thus far. And I, I love your boldness and it, it, it's a precocious boldness that's innate because at that point in your life when you take a massive risk of moving to a new country without an emotional support system, that's just all internal drivers at that point. And I'm curious to learn what was in between Vice and starting less. So after Vice, I fell into working in fashion and I think it was just, there were a lot of really exciting new brands that were entering into that world and fashion hadn't really been an industry I had ever desired to work in. It just kind of happened. And I think I didn't understand how, um, how coveted fashion in New York was as an industry and how many people wanted to be there. And I just was lucky enough to kind of have this vice angle and to be um, just so willing to work that I was working with some really great, really artistic brands and um, helping them through their New York Fashion Week shows and presentations. And a lot of these brands are a lot bigger now, um, but it was just very, um, I think, formative for me to see how these smaller companies were operating and how they were being driven by maybe a bigger vision. Um, and a lot of that sticks with me today when it comes to less and just, you know, not being compromising and um, the vision that we have and what we want to create, but also having a business that is operational and sustainable. Um, and then from there, I ended up um, working as the managing editor at Garance Doré's website. So um, it was this time when... I think people were really understanding the um, power of social media 
and things were really taking off in the digital space. And um, I was given this incredible opportunity to um, kind of run the digital team um, and cast people and come up with storylines and um, pitch ideas for big brands we were collaborating with. And it was just this time of creativity nonstop. We were shooting so much um, and traveling to Paris for Fashion Week there and shooting backstage at New York Fashion Week. And that was also when I was really introduced to beauty. So that was a very important moment in my career trajectory where I learned how to um, wear multiple hats, get so many things done. Um, but I was also introduced to um, the beauty area. And um, I realized that I was interested in that in a capacity that was larger than just a mm. customer. And I remember when we spoke a little while ago, you had mentioned you discovered a lot about the beauty industry that didn't feel modern. And so what were those sort of findings well, a few things. Um, one was I started to recognize how beauty products were marketed in a way that just didn't feel transparent. Um, and I started to see this kind of, um, as I was talking to different experts in the beauty space specifically, um, and in particular when it came to skincare, I was seeing a very, very clear, very common thread between what they were recommending people's skin's needs were and um, a very, very different story that was being marketed by brands. Um, and a lot of it had to do with using a lot of product. Um, you know, these brands selling you dozens of products and very specific products for all of these needs. And to me, it just resulted in this um, sense of insufficiency, which I know I personally have felt. I struggled with acne for a really long time and it just felt like such a personal finding for me where I recognized that the insufficiency that I felt personally had come from the way that I had been marketed to. Um, and that was making me feel like I wasn't good enough and I needed all of these products in order to fill this mm. void. And something else that um, I also just um, recognized within that time was how many ingredients are in products in the U.S., that aren't permissible in products in Australia, which, you know, is obviously um, a market um, that I'm very familiar with growing up there. There's something like 1,300 ingredients that are banned in products in Australia and Europe, and there are only 10 or 11 in the US. So the way that it operates is that in the US, you have to be proactive um, and there needs to be funding behind the research in order to get an ingredient banned. And so when there isn't funding, there's no proactive measures that are led by a government mm. agency to ban something. And so that leads to um, so many different ingredients in products that have question marks over them. And, you know, we're being told that we need to apply this to have this immediate result, but we're not being um, shown what the long-term effects could potentially be. Um, and then the third thing that I recognized was just the sheer waste in the industry, how much plastic, you know, these big tubes that were wrapped in plastic and um, all of this, these single use materials. Um, and that was all for, you know, a 10 mil product, you know, but it was packaged to make it feel like an 80 mil product. So you start mm. to see all of these issues within 
the space when you're looking at products every day and you're talking to experts mm-hmm. nonstop. Um, and then I think the, the final thing was um, just recognizing how outside of the beauty industry I had always felt um, personally, how, um, you know, my mom struggled to find the right color tone for her skin, you know, and that was something that I had always noticed and um, that none of the models ever looked like my friends or I. And that was just this moment for me where I just realized that beauty was such a, it was such a community where people came together and they became vulnerable and they would talk to each other about the stories that they had of, you know, a skin issue or a product that they loved and how that should be something that everyone, a space where everyone feels welcome but yet we've been taught that luxury is exclusionary. And um, that was something that I had a a personal issue with. um, And I felt very close to that issue. Um, And that altogether kind of drove me to pursue my own skincare line. So when did you start less? I started the research um, during my time there. I was taking a lot of notes actually about different ingredients, but I really, really stepped in and started dedicating nights and weekends to it when I first moved to LA, which was five years ago. So we were in research and development um, for about three years before we launched. What was the philosophy behind Les? I know you've explained sort of what your thoughts were leading up to creating your own brand and had it initially been crystal clear that you were creating something for yourself as a customer? It might help for me to explain that when I moved to LA, I was doing the research um, and development on nights and weekends, but during the day I was consulting for brands. Um, And so during that time, I started to recognize how important it was to be your own customer and to just um, lead lead by your gut and, um, understand that, you know, it's okay to make decisions that might, um, you know, put you on a certain side of a narrative. Um, and so that drove a lot of decisions for me where, you know, counter to this huge wave, there was this 12 step regime, um, for skincare that was really popular, um, during the period when I was doing research and development, And I felt like that was extremely wasteful and unnecessary. And it also drove this message that we need so much in order to feel sufficient. And um, I wanted to create something that was completely counter to that, which was just pure essentials. Um, And that's where the name less comes from. This idea of less is more and just reducing things um, and stripping it way back for the benefit of the environment and also throughout the integrity of our skin and um, just for ourselves on a deeper level of, you know, how much do we really need? The truth is that we already have everything that we ever need. And it's just great to have some key skincare products to support us along the way. And that's really our approach is to really step back from any kind of messaging that would ever make people feel like, they have to have this. Sure, you know, your skin might be dry or 
reacting to wearing a face mask every day. And these are products that can help you and get your skin on balance. But our goal ultimately is to get your skin into a place where you feel completely in harmony with how it's um, working, how balanced it is. And, you know, if there was ever a point where you could reduce your entire skin care ritual to just, you know, one product, like say our serum, that would be the best result that I could hope for, because it would mean that you have brought your skin into such a place where it is so independent from, um, external, um, support. And so we're really aiming to create a different way of thinking about organic skincare. Sorry to interrupt you. I love that so much. And, um, when we had one of our earlier chats, um, I remember you mentioned that there is this educational part of what you're doing with less with trying to simplify and pare back a skincare routine. And I'm so curious to learn what is this educational portion of the brand? I, I know a major issue for me that I felt as a customer, especially as one that had chronic skin issues, was that I felt like the products I was using were so disconnected from the real information that um, any you know high-level expert would provide. And so we create our products based on this deeper thinking around what skin actually needs. And we try to educate our customers in a very subtle way through our products. So for instance, our first product was our Ritual Serum. It's an oil-based serum. And at the time when we launched Less, there was still this um, pushback against oil-based products where a lot of people who have oily or combination skin felt like they had to continue, you know, using astringents and different products that stripped your skin of its natural oils. When in fact, we should be um, encouraging people who have um, skin types like that to use more oils in order to balance the oil production of their sebum. So um, it's all very subtle in how we kind of roll it out. And we do have some messaging. It's not this intense educational program. It's just like, this might seem counterintuitive, but this product will be great for you because of the X, Y, and Z. Um, again, with our face mask, it coagulates slightly, but it never completely oxidizes. And that's because if you go and see a really great esthetician, they won't be applying a face mask that completely dries out. What happens when that effect takes place on your skin is that all of these, again, natural oils are kind of stripped from your skin. Your skin gets really dry and it throws your oil production off balance and it can actually encourage an overproduction of um, oil in the days following that mask. So you are sometimes encouraging breakouts to happen. When you use a mask that isn't doing that, but is actually, you know, indulging your skin in the um, deeper effects that putting something on and leaving it there for 20 minutes does create, you're seeing the benefits without any of those negative repercussions. So we wanted to kind of shift the way that consumer products are created and think about what are the products that um, experts and estheticians would use if you went in for a a deeper treatment or, um, you know, we just wanted to create products that help to subtly educate customers. And that is, I think, 
the way that a lot of a lot of people have reached out to us and said, you know, I never thought about using a product like this or in this way, but it has changed mm-hmm. my skin. And um, that's really our goal is to educate people through the product. The product should always stand alone, stand for itself, be highly performing and show people how they can, you know, be empowered to take care of their own skin at home. You know, for us, it's not about forcing the full less ritual on anyone. You know, there are a lot of um, people out there that, you know, just want to use one product or, you know, they feel comfortable using a different cleanser and just want to start by using the mist or, you know, that there are different ways to um, use them. But our focus is on creating products that are really efficacious. And if you use them at the right time within your ritual, you will see the benefits. That's because the ingredients that we use um, are focused on both the immediate impact, but also long-term. So for instance, our regenerative mist, a lot of toning mists are there to either just create an instant hydration or to, um, you know, remove the final particles of bacteria from the surface of the skin And our mist does that, but it also has these regenerative components that are focused on repairing your skin over time, um, fading, hyperpigmentation, um, and um, encouraging your skin to just even out in texture and tone. And so we're really thinking about like, if we could make one mist, because that's all we'll ever make, what would we need it to do for it to be the only mist that less ever has. And, um, that is kind of where we always start is, um, how can we make something that we really feel like we can't get anywhere else? Um, and that maybe people haven't really thought about creating yet. And so yes, efficacy is really important to us, both immediate and long-term. Um, and to your point, a lot of extensive skincare regimes are just, working on a surface level or they're actually you're applying things that are counteracting other steps within your regime and all you're doing is wearing at your skin and creating the sensitivity so my issue before i started developing my own products was that i had um, chronic acne that was cystic and um, at the same time i had developed this extreme sensitivity i had very sensitized skin from trying to find a solution and using too many products that were too harsh. That was because I felt like I had to do that in order to see any results. But what I was creating was this terrible cycle of sure. I might see a pimple reduce immediately, but my skin was becoming so sensitive that it was then breaking out, you know, four or five X so easily because it had become so vulnerable to everything else. And we are trying to move away from that and um, allow people to really protect the integrity of their skin and to step into an area that is helping their skin to fortify, which is a very key element to every one of our products where we're actually helping people to strengthen their skin. But at the same time, they're also seeing, you know, results um, that they would want to see from any other skincare product um, that might be anti-acne or um, anti-redness. And what is clean beauty and what is organic beauty? Are they the same things? No. So um, clean beauty by definition is um, 
beauty that is free of toxic ingredients. And just to return to something I mentioned earlier, there are only a handful of ingredients that are labeled as toxic in the US. And um, so I think, you know, we have to think about clean beauty in a very discerning way in the US, where we're thinking about like, could this ingredient be sold in the EU? Or um, is this an ingredient that would be safe for a woman to use during pregnancy? And um, that's a very good barometer of um, whether something is actually clean. I think, you know, we've been trained to value um, immediate results over um, the health, the long-term health of our skin. And the truth is that if you have very, very considered products, you will be able to maintain, if not improve, the health of your skin long-term and also see immediate results. And then organic beauty is beauty created using organically grown ingredients. That is the difference between the two. And where is less on that spectrum? Um, so we use um, organic ingredients. Um, for instance, like our serum is 100% organic. We don't use any foaming agents. We don't use any dilutants. And um, we actually work with suppliers that um, are using more regenerative practices. So we're very, very strict on who we work with and the kind of ingredients that we use. So if we can't verify that an ingredient that we want to use um, is going to come from a certain supplier that um, or a farmer that is able to show proof of their sustainable practices and their ethical practices, then we just won't include that ingredient in a product. And we'll go back to the drawing board and think about the formula from a different angle. This is a huge part of kind of the day-to-day problem solving that I do now, which is Miles away from the problem solving I used to do in um, New York when I first moved there, but obviously it all connects. But we have actually been working with our factory um, to grow some of the ingredients we use. So that's been a huge step for us is, um, you know, just focusing on how can we be more sustainable and um, better for the planet in a way that goes deeper than, um, you know, just these buzzwords. Yeah, I love that. And I wanted to talk a little bit about Less and its brand marketing. I've noticed that Less has been politically active throughout this election period. And in an age where brands often err on the side of being apolitical, why was it important to express your views through the beauty brands platform? I I personally think that we have moved beyond a place where any individual or any Um, company can be apolitical. Um, I know that that was um, a very common position for companies to position themselves in for a really long time where they chose to be on neither side of the aisle. But we're beyond that. There's just too much at stake at this point. And there is so much information that is so readily available to us that we cannot look the other way. I just have to question if any individual or brand can sit by and see what's going on in the world, how they can try and remain neutral. I mean, you can't remain neutral in situations of injustice. And for us as a team at Less, it's so important that we use whatever platform we can when possible to amplify voices around issues that matter. And that is something I think that just comes from a place of 
again, just feeling in our gut that that is the right thing to do. Um, and I wouldn't want to have a company that did it any other way simply because when you have a space where you can connect with a larger audience, I mean, you may as well use that for good. So that has been our approach. It hasn't been structured or um, strategic. It's just um, how can we be a space that is safe for everyone and where important issues can be discussed because although skincare is, you know, when it comes down to it, just a product, it speaks to something much larger. It speaks to um, concepts of beauty. What is beauty? How do we define it? Who is included in it? You know, what does it represent? How does it impact our environment? And um, these are issues that deeply connected to the major issues of our time. So, you know, for us, it just feels like a very um, natural way to do things. I just think that no company at this point can remain apolitical. So if that choice hasn't been made by a company, it will be for them. Um, so, um, you know, I saw some of that when I was consulting during the development period for less where certain companies were late in stepping up and talking about an issue um, that the whole world had their eyes on. And it never felt right that they would have to take you know, a couple of days to respond. These are issues that are impacting people every day. You know, we're talking about human lives and we have come to a place where for so long it has always been about profit. And now we have to be courageous in, well, not even courageous, just human in putting people and our planet over profit, how we can shift how the world operates, how we look at business, um, because companies big and small have much more influence on the way that people think and how they operate and how they tune in to these issues than one might think. And we've seen the results of that this year, how connected people feel with certain companies that are focused on real sustainability or real representation. And, you know, I think that a lot of that just comes from teams who just deeply believe about these issues. And that's why it's really important to give people a seat at the table, allow more women into the boardroom, allow people of all different skin tones, of different educational backgrounds. Um, it's, it's so incredibly important that internally there is representation in order to allow what is right to be um, at the forefront of how companies operate. And I think this is so important because what I find most interesting about your brand is how modern it feels. It, it is a brand that is very reflective of the times in the sense that there is civic engagement, there's transparency, there's consciousness, and there's sustainability. And beauty has been going through many shifts from more transparency towards ingredients to seeking inclusivity and representation in brand campaigns, gender fluidity. Um, how do you navigate this shifting landscape? Ah, it's such an interesting question. I, I'm not sure that we're necessarily shifting. I think, um, you know, just to circle back on an earlier point, it's so incredibly important to be your own customer Less is skincare for, it's not skincare created for a 70, I mean, of course it's for everyone, but a 75 year old 
white male is not our core customer. And so it would be a very different company if that was the CEO of less. Um, it's not, it's, you know, a multiracial self funded, um, daughter of a single mother, you know, and that is in a lot of ways what drives our response to things and how we think about representation and, um, sustainability and um it's it's so much of it is influenced by wanting to step away from this homogenous idea of beauty i think that we all grew up with you know where we felt so out of certain industries we felt excluded from um we never felt like this was attainable i guess yeah i mean i never looked at a marketing campaign and thought wow that is me and um I never really felt like my friends encompassed or looked like what this ideal woman was, you know, it was created as a space where like we are rethinking what beauty is. Beauty is not connected to gender. It's not connected to a certain skin or hair color. It's not connected to a certain age. It's not connected to this idea of sexiness or any, anything like that, that I think, you know, is, really what traditional beauty marketing focuses on our marketing if that's what you can call it is Mm -hmm. really just focused on like okay where do we see beauty in the world who inspires us who are these creatives doing something interesting um that we feel compelled to connect with and to share their stories and um it's all about like what do we find interesting like what are we compelled by and I just don't think that our team and our community are compelled by this homogenous idea of what beauty is or was as defined by the beauty industry as a whole back in, say, the 80s and 90s. We're interested in people who are living creative lives, who are, um, you know, speaking out on certain issues, who are thinking their own way. And that's what we tend to gravitate towards as a team. And I think um, by way we connect with a certain community who feels aligned with those people, like the talent that we have, um, the different campaigns that we publish. Um, And it, again, is just simply a gut feeling that we have where we're sharing, you know, different ideas as a team every day. Like this could be yeah. cool. This could be interesting. Why don't we try this? And we um, kind of see where that path follows. We're operating in a way that feels very instinctive. And um, I think at this point in time, that's so important that certain brands are feeling like they can move beyond you know, this traditional marketing journey, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, so structured and so formulaic. And um, I think that that is something that we're going to see shift very, very quickly. There's so much, you know, innovation in technology. There's so much, there's a huge shift in what people want out of brands, how they want to feel connected to them, um, how they want to shop. And, um, you know, it's so important that, we are being more agile and just thinking as customers more than anything. I love that. And we recently talked about reading the room when it comes to marketing. This year has been particularly challenging for brands to balance their commercial interests 
with everything going on in the world. What has been the challenges you face as an independent label at this time? It is difficult at times, you know, you you want to obviously have a business that is um, making enough money to pay for your team and to cover um, basic expenses and to keep growing. And you want all of those things, especially as an independent company where you don't have the fallback of investors or VCs. Um, but this year we have been talking about human lives and um, you have to keep things in perspective. It's so important that that I recognize that we are not saving lives every day. We are focused on changing the way people think about skincare. And although that is important to a certain regard and to me as an individual and as the founder of Less, there is no way you can compare that to human lives and systemic issues and levels of oppression and injustice that have come to the surface this year more than ever, despite being there all along. And, you know, for us, it's been, it hasn't necessarily been challenging. It's just, we've just had to learn how to adapt and to be responsive mm -hmm. and to be comfortable with pulling the plug on something because it doesn't feel right for us to send an email or to launch an initiative or to announce a new product in the wake of something that is completely devastating, but is also speaking to a much larger issue. And that's something that as you grow as a company, you take on more responsibility as well. How will yeah. you respond to this? How will you step up? And I think, um, you know, for us, we have grown a lot over the past year. Um, you know, we've only been around for two years. So the last year we have grown quite a lot, but we have wanted to step up to the expectations of, I think, what we have on ourselves, but also what our community has for us as a team in being very responsive to issues that matter and being able to step up and say, this is something that's more important than us selling products today. I think you guys have done such an incredible job with the amount of civic engagement you've been doing on last, just because there is this beautiful balance between the conversation that you're supporting as well as the community that you're building. And I wanted to learn more about community building. I think you've built such an incredible community with LAS. And what was this process like? I feel so lucky to, you know, have the community that we have. We have people who have honestly <laughs> been... Um, supporting us and um, shopping with us, but also just kind of sharing our brand with friends since week one. A lot of where our approach to community building has come from is just wanting to create first a welcome space where everyone feels like there is a place for them. Our products are non-binary. They're really simple. They're extremely high quality, but we try and price them at a place that is somewhat attainable for everyone and how we go about working with people is we just again find people that are thinking about things differently or share a very particular unique vision and when it comes down to kind of what we see in those people is 
that they are defining beauty on their own terms and to us like to allow them to be people who represent less, who we're collaborating with to create images or to announce, um, you know, special events. It's so important that we're working with people who are outside of kind of this mainstream idea of beauty or who are promoting, you know, thousands of products because that would be um, antithetical to our idea of like reducing what you use. And so we are very focused on lifting up certain voices and working with people because of their kindness or their intelligence or their creativity. And I think that what we have seen is that people see themselves in these people and um, feel naturally drawn to a brand that is um, working with people that aren't necessarily talent. It's not talent necessarily with millions of followers. We're working with artists who have 800 followers. And um, I think people see themselves in the talent that we work with. And beyond that, we try and speak very directly to our community. And it's not just about skincare. It's not just about selling products. It's about one of the things that we're interested in today. And, you know, let's share some of that with our customers. What are we reading? What are we, what exhibitions can we not wait to go and see what are the movies that have influenced us? Who are some voices that could kind of step in and share what they're doing right now that has nothing to do with skincare whatsoever, but either is reviewing and um, reshaping what beauty means, or maybe they're just looking at something as simple as rituals or simplicity, like this less is more mode of being. And It's somewhat broad, but that is, I think, what a community is. It's not just people who are focused on a product. It's people who are connected through ideas. And that's always been our approach to community is like, think about ideas, not just products. And I think that's also central to less as a brand, as a company, to us as a team. Let's focus on things that go beyond product. Yeah, it's a different way of thinking about an industry that has been so focused on products nonstop. And again, just to kind of circle back on something I said earlier, like we have been sold so many products that we don't need. We should be connecting through ideas and allowing products to follow. And, you know, I just really believe in community as the backbone of a very like healthy company with a lot of longevity. And, um, you know, for me, less is not this brand I'm building to try and sell in a couple of years. It's something that really reflects like this change that I want to see. To me, this is important to maintain control over it, to be able to ensure that this space is kept safe for everyone, that people aren't coming in and um, changing the way that we operate, that we can continue to do things in a way that feels right and um, is just based on this kind of human instinct of like, what are we going through right now? Whether that is something connected to our interests and is positive or whether it's something that's really harrowing and deserves to be noted and shared with our community. It really feels like less is both a community and a culture And I just wanted to pivot with one question. I read that 
wherever you go in the world, you always travel with one carry-on suitcase. And I feel like that really, really, you do live your motto, which is less is more. And can you tell me more about why experiences are, are so important? Okay, that's so funny that you've read that. And it's true. I actually don't own a large suitcase, which I think for a long time seemed just crazy for someone that used to work in fashion, but I don't want to be tied down to material things. You know, when I am trying to be out there experiencing things and, you know, just to kind of circle back on this idea of less is more, like we don't need that much. And um, I think that that is something that is so central to less and just so important to us as people just to understand how little we need in order to have a really incredible life and to um, be free of certain things um, that might tie us down in a way that prevents us from being agile, from being able to just have a carry on and say like, let's jump on a boat or let's do this or, you know, be a little bit um, spontaneous. And I would say experience is just so, so key to, um, to who we are, just going out, um, seeing the world, experiencing different cultures. But that's something that we can experience in, you know, we're so lucky in the US and just the world as it is today with so many different cultures converging and the ability to drive from my place in East LA to Hollywood, East Hollywood, you know, five minutes down the road and pick up incredible Filipino food or to drive another 10 minutes and have some of the best Ethiopian food that you can eat in the States. Like we experience is all around us. Um, and I think we get so tied to these material things and needing to have so much that we, um, sometimes lose sight of, um, what it really means to just be living. Um, one thing I've been really trying to focus on is, um, the weight of, my phone and of technology and just trying to cut back on needing to be so absorbed in that. Um, because again, that's just, uh, it's, it's exactly like a check-in suitcase. We're carrying, there's so much information in there and, um, so much to distract us from just, you know, living, going for a walk, being in nature. Um, the more that we can minimize the things that are just weighing us down, the, I think, the more connected we can be as people. I love that so much. And I think for some parting notes, I would love to ask you, what is one place you'd like to visit in a post-vaccine, post-COVID world? Uh, I want to go to Japan so bad. (laughs) I've I've had two trips to Japan booked and then cancelled over the past maybe 12 years. Um, and I've been wanting to go for so long. I'm so highly influenced just by this, um, philosophy of wabi-sabi, you know, perfectly imperfect. Um, and also Mm -hmm. their approach to self-care and beauty as a ritual. Um, that's really central to less and, um, how we think about skincare, you know, our tagline is ritual, not routine. It's stepping away from this idea of a routine in the morning, a routine at night and thinking about it as like a real act of service for yourself. You know, it's, it's just five minutes each day that you have with you. And it's a moment where you can really show care for, for your skin, which is such a, an important aspect of your health. And, um, I 
just am so excited to visit Japan and um, absorb everything that, um, you know, their culture has influenced um, in ours and um, within the beauty industry as a whole. Well, Nita, thank you so much for sharing your story today and sharing your philosophies on less. I too am looking forward to going to Japan in a post-vaccine world and I hope that we can reconnect soon. Thank you so much, Olivia. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you today. Tune in every Tuesday for a new episode on the Art of Travel podcast. Subscribe to the Art of Travel podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you may stream your favorite podcasts. The Art of Travel is created by Olivia Lopez, produced by Bon Weekender, edited by Jason Stewart, and music composed by Slow Shiver. We'll see you on Tuesday.